I can get lost anywhere. Now, it's useful that most of the time when I'm out, I can, uh, Nora can be with me, and I can then, with her help, find my way coming back. And I'm pretty familiar with my way round Mays and Lisburn, but I have to say, take me away from that by myself, you never quite know where I'm going to end up. Now, most of the time, that's okay, but last year, when I was uh, acting as, uh, as moderator for the year, it was a little bit more worrying. So I had as many precautions with me as I possibly could have. I had my sat-nav in the car. I also took with me my old standalone sat-nav. And then I also have my phone, and on my phone I had Apple Maps and Google Maps, which you would think would have me pretty well covered, but around midnight one night, uh, outside Donamana, I had no signal from anything, and I was pretty near lost, and I just happened to come onto a main road, which I was then able to find my way home. So from that point on, I also then reverted to old school and had maps with me. But it's still possible to go wrong. Uh, just about exactly a year ago, I was over in Market Drayton uh, to be part of the homecoming parade of the Royal Irish Regiment who had recently returned from a tour of duty in Afghanistan. I was accompanied on that occasion by Mark Donald, who's one of our chaplains, and he had made the whole way to Afghanistan and back. And I was also accompanied by our present moderator. Uh, we were to go and watch the homecoming parade, have lunch with the soldiers, so we parked the car, we did what we were supposed to do over, over lunch, and then we were to make our way back to get the car. And it was at that point we realized that there wasn't one car park in this small English town, but there were probably five. And not only was the issue that we couldn't locate the car park, then we all looked at each other and it said, what car were we driving? because it was a hired car and we hadn't a clue even what color the car was or what shape it was. And when we chatted to some people, asking them A, where these car parks were and realizing that we were standing there with Irish accents, we were also having to apologize and saying, you know, not all Irish people are completely as stupid as us. So it's possible to go wrong. And at those moments we actually realized that we do need guidance. And that's the first point that is going to hopefully come up on the screen just now for you, that's in this passage. There are those points in life when actually, yes, we do recognize that in life we need this guidance. Look at verse 1 with me. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. And still David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. Now, as you read that or hear that verse being read, uh, you might understand that's a, that's a pretty anemic sort of a, a verse because seeking guidance from God is 
pretty standard. It's a staple, as you might think, in our understanding of what it means to be a Christian and a disciple of God, one who wants to follow God. Of course, we want to to listen. We want to obey God. We, We need and we crave this guidance. But I want to unpack here in this verse what is actually behind this, because when you look at it, it is actually quite staggering. Because when you go back and think about where David has been, it was ages ago, or seemingly ages ago, when the prophet Samuel first went to the homestead of David's father, Jesse. And it was there that he anointed this young cub, this young boy, David, to be the next king of Israel. So David knew from an early age that he was to be king. And the only thing that was stopping him being king was the fact that Saul was still there. But now in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see that Saul is dead. There is nothing preventing David from being king. So David knows that he is to be the king. But you look at what verse 1 is saying is that still... He is asking and he is inquiring of the Lord. So before he does anything else, even though he knows that he's on the right track and he's going in the right direction, he still wants to know that the Lord is definitely leading him and guiding him. Actually, Calvin has a wonderful quotation on this uh, in his sermon on this passage. And he says, although David knew he was on the way, he still knew he could err seriously if God did not guide him. Now, isn't that instructive for all of us? Because we're not talking here about those moments of blind indecision or where we're really going out on a limb There may be many points actually where we do feel like that and we genuinely don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And it's in those moments, of course, we want to hear from God. We want to know his guidance. But here, it's a completely different level of things because David knows the general direction that he is to go. But still, he seeks guidance from God. And yet our problem so often is that when we know the rough track that we're supposed to be going on, that we're heading in the right direction, we just ply on. You know, we've got the ideas, we've got the abilities, we've got the strength, we can, we can do whatever is necessary. And so we just go on ahead. And I think this is a lesson to all of us in church, particularly those of us who are in the leadership of our churches that we don't just run ahead, assuming that we have got all the bases covered. And that's why so many things are done prayerlessly in the church, because we just think we know what we need to be doing. And the most vital thing, surely, that we can be doing as a church is that we are seeking God. Now, that's a theme that has been coming out right throughout this service. The most important, the most vital thing that any of us can be doing is seeking God, praying to God. You see, no matter what priorities you have in your life, no matter what 
things are coming to the surface and you feel must take all of your attention, the most important thing that you can be doing, that you should be doing, is pray. Praying. Seeking God. And we do that together. We do that as we pray regularly together at our, at our prayer gathering. And even though it's not quite as we would want it to be when we're doing it online, still there is a joy and a sense of that here we encounter God. And of course, the reality is that actually we learn to pray for the big things, those huge decisions when we are in the habit of praying for the insignificant things, the tiny things. You will cope with all the major points of crisis in your life. You will be able to cope when you are in the habit of praying about the tiny little things. It's like the spiritual equivalent of that old financial advice, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. So as we look again at verse one, in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? And the Lord said, go up. And again, David asked, where shall I go to Hebron? Now, we don't exactly know how David got the answer here. It seems very vocal, seems very definite, very clear. He probably went to Abiathar, the priest, who would have used the ephod, which was that intricate, very ornate garment of gold and blue and scarlet. And over that, the high priest would have worn the, the breastplate with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. And there were two other diamond-like stones in that called the Urim and Thummim. And again, we don't quite know how this would have worked, but it probably was along the lines of a yes, no type of thing. And then the stones were rolled and then the answer was revealed. And of course, perhaps you might think it would be wonderful to have a device like that so that you simply ask a question. I mean, should I study English or history? You roll the stones? No. Should I take this new job? You roll the stones and you get the answer, yes. But actually, God has promised that he will lead us and he will guide us. Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye. Or over to Proverbs 3 and verse 6, in all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. But actually, as I think about all of that and thinking about seeking God's will for your, the direction of your life and what you should be doing, I think there's another little sub-lesson that comes out of this. And maybe our next slide is, is going to show that. It's simply this, that there is a plan for your life. And I want to underscore that. God had a plan for David's life and he equally has a plan for your life. God has everything mapped out. God knows exactly who you're going to marry or if you're going to marry. God knows exactly what you are to do with your life. He knows what he wants you to do. And I think that that is an encouragement that today we really need to focus on. But actually, 
you might be thinking right now, this is hard. I'm finding life hard just at the minute. And I also find it hard to believe that God is working on something in my life and that God is going to achieve something in my life. And I want to remind you that it was hard for David as well. Whilst we have only read the first 11 verses of this chapter today, if you were reading on through to the end of this passage, you would see that there was a lot of opposition coming towards David. There was fear, there was anxiety, there would have been angst. But what we see is that even through all of the opposition, even through all the mess of life, that God's will was unfolding, that God was unfolding his purposes through David's life. And David was convinced about that. And so I think it's even more instructive for us that even though David was convinced about that, he still stopped. As we read this first verse, he still stopped to inquire of God. Do I go up? Where should I go? And I think there's another life lesson that comes out of this passage at this point. And it's simply this, that actually initially, this didn't look like very much. So God's will is beginning to unfold in David's life, but I want to underscore this fact again for you that as it was just beginning to unfold, it still didn't look like much. Where did God tell David to go? Look in verse one, it says he was to go to Hebron. And back in the day, that was a little tiny town It was an insignificant place. This was before Jerusalem would have been established as a a significant capital. Certainly it was not worth comparing to the towns and the, the, the safe places that the Philistines had been establishing for themselves along the coast. And it was in this small, insignificant place that David was to go to become king And he was to stay there for seven and a half years. And this was David, the one who had been anointed as the king. And he went to a small, insignificant, tiny place, nowhere to write home about. Do you remember one of the pictures that Jesus used to describe the kingdom of God. As Jesus stood at the waterside and actually in a boat, he began to teach the crowds. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31, he told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now just imagine if you had been listening to Jesus that day as he spoke to the crowds and he was telling and showing this picture of what the kingdom of God was to become. Would you have believed 
how big and significant the kingdom of God would be demonstrated on the earth. And as the church of Jesus Christ would grow all over this world. And David here in 2 Samuel arrives at a tiny little town and he has proclaimed the king. But what I want you to see here is that this is the very first time that God's anointed king is ruling as king on the earth. And I think this should be an encouragement for all of us. Because even though David may be here and he's but the king of one tribe and he's living in an insignificant little place, but it was under the direct leading of God himself. And so as you think about your life, your situations, there may be many points at which you might be tempted to think, you know, this doesn't look like much. Maybe you're even thinking, actually, this hasn't turned out the way that I would have wanted this to have turned out. And I'm not impressed. Or we're, we're impatient for things to move on so that we can really do what we want to do. Or even as we begin to apply this a little bit broader and think about the church of Jesus Christ as we find it in the 21st century is that its voice is relatively small and there are many strident voices against the church. There are many people who would actually want to cancel the voice of the church in the public square. And even in these days of the COVID restrictions, even we can't be doing the things as church that we would want to be doing. And then we might be tempted to think, this doesn't look like much at all. But I want to remind you, don't overlook what God is doing. And perhaps the most important question that we can be asking ourselves today is this. What does God want us to learn? What have we to learn through these times? What is God teaching us what is he saying to you right now today as you've been enduring this over this past year? But actually, there's another big lesson in this passage. And the next slide is going to come up. It's just going to put that, and you're going to see it. It says that you need to respond to the invitation. You know, reading over verses seven or four through to seven, they describe an incident where the men of Jabesh Gilead went on a daring expedition to retrieve the dead bodies of Saul and his sons whom the Philistines had left hanging outside one of their towns. The men of Jabesh Gilead had always been loyal to David or to Saul because Saul had been good to them and they never forgot it. But David now recognizes that if he is to be king, he is to reach out to even those people who may have been his enemies at one time and he needs to bring all the tribes together. So here, David is acting like a politician, but his offer and the offer that he makes in verses six and seven is sincere 
where he says to them, may the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave for Saul, your master is dead and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. See, what we see in those couple of verses is that the people of Jabesh Gilead have been invited, invited to come and acknowledge who David is, the anointed king, the anointed ruler, and to accept him as their king. And actually, there's a bit of a, of a glimpse of the gospel here in this moment because there's a hint of what David's greater son, Jesus, would do. The first recorded words of Jesus when he was on the earth was to repent for the kingdom of God has come near. And actually, we're never told how the men of Jabesh Gilead responded to this invitation. And actually, the next couple of verses, verses 8 and 9, talk about some outright opposition against David, where it says, Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and made him king. So you see that opposition. But David is the one who has been anointed by God to be king. And what we see in the rest of this chapter, in many ways, is nothing other than what always happens, is that God establishes his kingdom. Where did Jesus say he would build his church? Jesus said he would build his church right up to the very gates of hell itself. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So we should not be surprised when we see opposition to the gospel. We should not be surprised when you take a stand for Jesus Christ or when you want to live in an authentic way that honors Jesus and you see the reaction from other people. You should not be surprised when you see that because Jesus Christ has established his kingdom. Jesus Christ is the rightful king. But the question that is posed to everyone is the same question that is posed here in this passage to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And the responses that we see may be indifferent or it may be outright opposition as we see also in this passage. And this story is recounting an event in history from 3,000 years ago. But the challenge that it issues is exactly the same challenge that comes to you today. And it is simply asking you the question, which kingdom will you stand for? Which kingdom will you give yourself to? And will you pledge your allegiance to the rightful king, Jesus Christ, who died for you that you might have eternal life? And he issues that invitation, will you follow me? Let us pray. Lord, speak to us. 
Speak to us so that we know that your leading of us is clear and definite. May we be in the habit of seeking your face for ourselves, for others, for our church, for our land. Thank you, O God, that you have a plan for us. Help us not to doubt it. And thank you, Lord, that your love is strong, but your grip over us is sure. Amen.